Okay, welcome to Here for the Health of It podcast. We have Ashley Young. We're talking about PTSD today. So, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me again. <laughs> and so, post traumatic, traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a pretty heavy topic. I know you were in the military for a long time. You've seen yeah. a lot of that and are currently in the military. Yes. yes. Uh, so, maybe walk us through what it is and some relevant things about it maybe okay um so post-traumatic stress obviously the post-traumatic is after a pretty traumatic event um and traumatic is defined by you know perceived threat fear it could be loss of life um potential injury um sexual abuse sexual assault any type of aggressive nature and so there's just a enormous amount of threat that one is perceived and so um you know historically obviously people are are quickly able to identify um, veterans of for having uh, PTSD, but it's not defined by the event, if that makes sense, right? It's defined by a reaction Re- to, the, to event the event, and yeah. perception of the event, which makes it more generalized to a population um, of people when you think about assessing the symptoms and things like that. And so a lot of people do think about event-oriented trauma and they can become dismissive of their experiences because of the veteran experiences, first responder experiences, mm-hmm. and therefore. And that's a good point just based on sometimes you'll hear somebody telling a story and your perception is that it wasn't that big of a deal, but mm-hmm. their perception and reaction could have been a big deal. So it's almost right. like these different thresholds of understanding to empathize with somebody. Yes. Um, is that a skill set one could work on? Um, and I know that perspective and life events kind of play a role in that, but is there something that somebody could work on? Almost to give an example is like, peop- I hate snakes. Mm-hmm. So if you put them in a, you put me into a room with snakes, they may not be touching me, but my perception is they're going to eat me essentially. Yeah. Um, but then you have a snake trainer who could walk in the room and their blood pressure stays the same. Their reaction's perfectly normal because of the their experience with them. Right. How would one train themselves to deal with, I guess, traumas or, or lower their threshold of reaction? Well, you know, we talked a little bit in the previous podcast about um, the EMDR, which is my primary method for treating PTSD in addition to cognitive behavioral therapy. But desensitization, exposure therapy, um, those are great methods to to address the type of scenario that you gave, right? And I'll give a, a very personal example. Um, I've always loved dogs from afar um, and also would always want to be around them. The moment that a dog was free from their leash, my body responded differently than what my mind told me. And so, um, and so I lived most of my life very fearful of dogs and couldn't really understand why. Mm-hmm. Um, but so then I went back, um, as I got further in my uh, degree, um, I wanted to understand my story more. And so I went back and my babysitter when I was in like second or third grade, as I went back, I talked to her and she said, oh yeah, you, you witnessed <laughs> my child getting attacked by a dog. I did not remember that. Wow. Just, it was pretty vicious. And so my body and my brain obviously recalled that. And so I, I purchased a dog um, about 11 years ago and basically like, gave my husband the steps to help me overcome that. And it took about six months, but every time I had this very uh, physiological response yeah. and it took a while. And, and even now, sometimes depending on the type of dog, 
um, if they're barking at me in close, I constantly have to give myself different messages, you know, to help um, reframe the thought process. So, yeah. And, and if there's two people who witness the same event, one person may be really traumatized and the other person goes ahead like nothing happened. Oh, yeah. It's completely individualized. I mean, sure, sure there are commonalities amongst people, but the, the experience itself and how we perceive it is individualized. It's different. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's different. Is that where repetition and training comes into play? Like just to use the military as an example, to try to expose, you know, people that are going to be going off to war to events that they're going to possibly see and that's just more and more exposure to that? Or do they do anything? I don't know if you can share stuff like this, but drastic things pre a war zone. Yeah, I think they, uh, we definitely try, um, you know, the mission I went on, we did a six months prep um, leading up to, and I think it's just different when you're in the real life and it's a potential. Yeah. And there's a there's a threat right there versus a notional mm -hmm. threat, and so your, your brain, you know, the, the the fight flight freeze, right? We can't anticipate if that happens, um, and so I think in when we are practicing and when we're engaging and preparing for these type of missions, is we know that it's all notional. So the threat isn't real, mm -hmm. if right. that makes sense. Right. You can make it as real as you can, right. mm -hmm. but the thought process and what you're able to access mentally and psychologically is completely different. Different, yeah. Well, I see, I was wondering about that for special forces. Like, how close to real do they come to? And maybe these are the secrets of, you know, how you get some of these special force Navy SEAL type crazy people mm -hmm. that can do things that you just think, that. how did you get that trained? Well, I will say... Um, you know, the military does do a good job for, um, you know, these specialized forces to make the training as real and stressful mm -hmm. as it can. I mean, even officer school, the goal was to, to completely put us in distress so that we can make a decision in the midst of that. And so, um, you know, so those are kind of, you know, geared for those experiences. And even in basic training, I just remember going and, and low crawling and remembering as we were low crawling like they are real rifles like those are real bullets oh, over our head and so um you know so they do a good job of responding but again mentally you know the, that the army's not going to yeah. kill you yeah. you know yeah. Yeah. So the friendly is not going to kill you here yeah. you right know? and so like, there's an element of that yeah so what's the threshold then for being ptsd versus not Let's say somebody's scared and they maybe have a bad memory, or I think one of my kids, they have a nightmare because they saw something that scared them, but then it goes away over a certain period of time. Right. Uh, at least for their nightmare. So then let's take that to where it would actually be diagnosed. How would you determine that? Well, the DSM does a good job, um, and my book is closed now, but it does a good job of delineating criteria because obviously there are some symptoms that can be very acute. You know, mm -hmm. acute stress reaction, um, but quite naturally, if, if, if there's two or more or three or more, depending on the criteria base, for for a period of like 30 days, right, okay. that you would want to elevate care, right? Because yep. there are some people that you can encounter experiences, and it can impact you differently. You know, like for sure, losing a loved one, like um, you know, having a near a near death experience, maybe an accident, where you may have some similar symptoms. But I think the longevity of it, the combination of it, and also, you know, trauma just shapes our behavior, our mm -hmm. thought processes. And if you're not able to truly recover and come back to, right, those are one of the indicators that maybe this is elevated something that, more yeah. serious for the loved ones that, that may be trying to assess whether or not someone near them um, could be potentially has, has yeah. PTSD. And would they go for treatment right away? 
in your recommendation? Let's say somebody has a loved one that passed away or they have a really traumatic experience. Do Would you typically tell them to wait 30 days, see how it is, and then start treatment? Or would you tell them to start treatment immediately, proactively? You know, I, I think sometime, you know, can, can be helpful, maybe mm-hmm. two to three weeks. You know, it takes time to settle in after a traumatic event to, to really see how it's shaping mm-hmm. you. You know, in the That's beginning, good. you typically have a lot of support. You know, you think about um, when an event happens, a significant event, or even death, there's a lot of people around you. You know, people are there, families, they're supporting you. Yep. Um, but when the dust settles is when you truly get to experience what mm-hmm. your experience is like. And so I think allowing that time to pass to truly see how you are can give can be a good indicator of when to get treatment. Yeah, that's good. Mm-hmm. That book you referenced, can you say that again? What was the P? Uh, oh, PTSD. Yeah. Oh, I use this is a small handy dandy uh, diagnostic manual for psychiatric disorders. Okay. Uh, but the DSM five is a DSM-5, significant yeah. book, and then that's the diagnostic manual for mental health for diagnosing criteria. I had a question on that. So, how often is that updated? And with the current climate of change, with things that I would say used to be cons- in that book as mental disorders or mental disabilities. Mm-hmm are now becoming, I don't know if normal is the answer, or I don't know how to talk about it's a, in just what we're seeing, like with gender, with, um, I think anything, like I was just reading something yesterday that they want to eliminate the terminology breastfeeding mm. and breast milk and turn it into human milk feeding chest feeding mm-hmm. um just milk right. i guess yeah. and i wondered you know how extreme it can get and at what point does the book change mm. and who does that well the american psychological i think association is the i think it's the founder and they're they are authorized to also publish um the dsm um but what i will say is that this is the DSM-5, and it's been around for a long time, and yep. this is the fifth edition. So it doesn't evolve Fast. as quickly okay. as someone would think. Um, you know, there's some terminology that may change. I, I remember learning dysthymia disorder, and then now one of my clients educated me about two years ago as persistent depressive disorder, and I was like, what is that? And it's right. just the word change from dysthymia. And so I think it, it doesn't evolve as you know, as quickly and rapid as our climate does. And typically, you know, I I think some of the changes like substance abuse, you know, for a long time it wasn't seen as a disease and a lot of that captures. So it may expound upon. Yeah, yeah. But typically in my experience, there hasn't been a significant amount of additions, but maybe breaking down criteria to delineate other factors that may have been confusing. Right. um, To provide more clarity. Right. Because it just seems like it's become a major argument and creating more and more stress just across the country Mm -hmm. and even the world based on things that, and I get, I'm a big proponent of like science is limited by our level of education and thinking, right? Mm -hmm. Like God, ultimately, we're never going to catch up to what his plan was. Mm -hmm. So science is trying to figure out life and events and, and everything. And it's always going to be behind. But I always wonder, in general, when things get changed, and when things get updated, so that it can help normalize even just people's arguments, you know what I mean? Like even 
I, I think in, in like, even with vaccinations and different things that are, that are happening. And, and I think just from what this does with a mental, from the mental health standpoint, mm-hmm. it's just crazy. And there, it, it's hard to know what the line is anymore yeah. of like, Hey, should I send this person to somebody to get counseling mm-hmm. or is this just the new norm that I'm, that I'm just not used to or accustomed to. Yeah. And I th- so I do think it's very applicable um, to our terminology and how we address clients and the population that we serve. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that is always evolving more quickly than the, the diagnosis criteria um, is, is helpful language. And, and again, through my experiences, clients educate me, you know, yeah. and so for a while, you know, I didn't know things like Polymarian relationships and things like that that I've learned over the time. Right. And so I think just remembering that operate within your scope of work and care mm-hmm. while honoring uh, the client before you. I'm very honest with my scope is very limited, but I build my resource pool based on those that are. And so I think it's just helpful to be familiar with how things are changing, that it's helpful for the clinician to know what their range and scope of right. care is. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's a, it's like you want to, you want to understand. I always think of it like I just want to understand where somebody's coming mm-hmm. from, but then mm-hmm. know if there is a level of concern that's right. that does need addressed, and it's hard to know right. nowadays. It is hard. It's very hard. Um, you, you know, I, I know sometimes I struggle with making sure I say the right pronouns and, right. and that, and so I, I do give, um, you know, I make an announcement up front, you know, to offer grace, but also emphasizes not my strong so it's an area right. of growth but also you know there there are clinicians that are very well versed right and whereas one person might look at that and go like that to them it might be extremely strange to be like wait i need to call you something else right but but i guess that expands to like if i want you to call me you know joe and my name's tom mm-hmm. or you know i guess what would be the most extreme thing that you would be like, we shouldn't be calling you that, or you shouldn't be identifying as that? Mm. Or is there a thing? I don't know if there is a thing. <sighs> you know, I, I do think that, um, you know, obviously they're, they're, they're different type of people. And obviously within life coaching, you have a wider range and, and bioethical guidelines, you know, people come in, we meet them where they are. And it's our job to, to let them know to, to not operate beyond our scope, but to still make sure it's an emotionally safe place. It's a lot to balance, right? Right. And so I, I, I don't know if, if it is our job. I do know that there are more clinicians, there are more Christian counselors that um, are very clear with where they are very upfront. And so then that's the modality of mm-hmm. which, and there's Christian ethical counseling that we can abide by. And sometimes that does get gray. And so, but I would say that there are uh, a, a certain population of clinicians that will state their left and right limits um, up front and um, from, from my experiences and, and may feel comfortable saying, like, I'm, I'm, that's something I'm not in support of, sure. but therefore let me refer. Um, and so I may not state as clearly that that's not something I'm in support of, but it's not a therapeutic service that I can offer you. Right. Right. And, and so just to not allow the client to walk away feeling judged or feeling um, as if our, our differences in opinions are somehow right. less than or above. The sure. Other. And I think it just applies across the board in anything mental health. Like a narcissist doesn't know they're narcissistic type mm-hmm. of thing. That's their world. 
but I guess it would take one to encourage them to like go talk to somebody that can understand their point of view and make right. them realize that maybe something needs to and 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 also there are certain people that um individuals can hear and receive you know right. some people can send the same messages you know we we experience that with our kids right i can mm -hmm. tell isaiah to stop and dad says stop and it's a, somehow it communicates a different right. language mm -hmm. and so also you know narcissistic particularly it would take a special person for them to be able to hear and receive and to be able to um be willing to do some right. form of intervention yep so back to the dog story you said your husband helped you mm -hmm. recover from it through desensitization? Yeah, and ex significant exposure and repetition. Okay. Right. So is that something that a family member who's watching their loved one go through some sort of stress can help with? Or do they go some, is there a resource for them to yeah, help with that? I would say there, there are definitely resources. I wouldn't advise, um, you know, family members to, to overly expose or to, to, to do that model because, you know, you take a veteran that... Um, has been in combat and um, been wounded by a firefight, you wouldn't just take them to a firework show and say, hey, just just be here. You know, that's yeah. overly stimulating. And so some cognitive behavioral therapy to reframe our thoughts about our experiences as a part of that. Also, um, exposure in an incremental um, incremental pieces of time, you know, that a clinician should guide. And so I would say when it comes to that, you want to be sure a professional is guiding that process. And, and, and that takes time to get to exposure, you know, and you yeah. need to be able to establish trust and the person and the competency yeah. on trusting that I'm going to be safe. Safety is the most important thing. Yeah. And so I would um, just encourage um, dialogue with family members and also for people suffering with the symptoms mm -hmm. and so there's a variety of symptoms you know some just to just to name a few is uh, memories flashbacks you know it's like you're reliving the experiences and again we see a lot of women that suffer miscarriages and may have had to um uh get their the child taken from them you know from just the procedure is losing me it's not an it's not an abortion but there is something very similar where the child is determined that they are you know they can't survive and then there's a procedure i can't think of the procedure but that experience is yeah. that experience can be very traumatic for a lot of women so those memories of reliving that experiences those flashbacks can be very very difficult um and you also see a, a shift in behavior there's loss of sleep a combination of symptoms that you would notice for yeah. and then just being the being startled, those symptoms of being exaggerated, right? And so maybe someone honks a horn and maybe I just can't gather myself. So those are things that you can um, do, but you always want to approach a loved one in a very calm and loving way and supportive way because sometimes they're not quite understanding what's happening because they're yeah. reliving it. Yeah. So when you think of reliving it, my thought processes and my ability to think through the experience is really not there. Terrifying. It's absent, yeah. right? And so being alongside them, asking questions. Again, community is important. So asking more questions about telling me what was that like for you can yeah. be very helpful because yeah. sharing is very nice. helpful. So you wouldn't recommend covering Tom and snakes. <laughs> no. <laughs> right off the bat. I, because I know him. I, <laughs> Maybe in this case, yes, but not as a general rule. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I do like this exposure therapy thing. I think that's something that somebody can take home and, and utilize. Um, 
what about for events that are like like sexual abuse? Mm. How would you take somebody to overcome that? Because you don't. I mean, I imagine you're not exposing them to. Yeah. So you know that 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 would, that treatment plan would probably look a lot different. Mm-hmm. You know, and so EMDR that we could talked be more. about before could be um, more appropriate for desensitizing that type of event because you're you're there in that space mentally. Yeah. And so that that's the exposure, but you that there wouldn't be a scenario that probably could be helpful in the external environment. Yeah. So you would want to get to a place where the person's kind of desensitized, their thoughts shift from maladaptive thoughts to adaptive thoughts about themselves, about you know who, who they are today and about their experiences, and then maybe shift into some CBT therapy where you're reframing thoughts, just negative beliefs that were yeah. developed. And, and that process, and so it's very tailored for the scenario. Um, and uh, of which the client is presenting, you know, so if it's created a significant amount of social anxiety, right. right, and so you may do an experiment where you can, you know, I do it with college students a lot that have a lot of social anxiety, you know, yeah. one of the smallest experiences that I may use is like when you go to the cashier at a gas station, like do a three sentence exchange, how are you, how was your weekend, how was this, and to gauge that response See, and then yeah. rate my anticipatory stress. On a, on a scale and then I rate what the actual experience yeah. was and then you're able to kind of see now my brain has information like that was rated like a four but my anticipatory stress is like an eight so you would vary on what the client is presenting um, when considering exposure yeah that's cool that's really and they would keep a journal of that yeah and so they'll go through saying all their experiences and then they could say every time I go to the gas station it's really only ever a four but I always think it's an eight and they right. overcome it consciously yes, because I now I have the experience right and so again whatever my bad experience was or my um, whatever my fear-based experience was I only have that that I'm basing the scenario off so right. we're creating new experiences with the new information so that is now stored in our brain and yeah. we utilize that as a tool to help reframe because some people are very logical and they have to have a tangible experience to be able to accept that as my new truth and so that's very mm-hmm. helpful. Okay. What do you think of like people who are always positive, like literally the crazy <laughs> optimist? Well, and, and, and crazy might be the wrong term, but that just spin everything into like, this is good, things are going great, I'm fine, um, I'm awesome. <laughs> I'm awesome. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think. I think everyone has a story, you know, and I, I believe that we all play roles. We fall into these different roles, and um, sometimes people have a role that they are in because, for whatever reason, they are that for their friends, they are that for their family, and they don't know quite how to turn it off. Mm-hmm. And, and like, who am I if I don't do that? Right. 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 And so I, I, I think that you know, but you have to be willing to tap into that, and that that, that takes being having time with yourself to do a self assessment. And to do like an inventory of what's happening with right. me, but but some people do operate in a role, and if it's received well, and I and people receive me well, then I can kind of have behind this mask Conti- and, I, yeah. and I never really yeah, truly, yeah. truly deal with some tough stuff. And yeah, stuff. but I do believe that there are some people that um, that are generally positive. Um, and and we don't know what their story has been. Some people are positive because maybe they had a very terrifying experience 
and they recovered from. I know some right, breast right. cancer survivors that are just like, God, I got this second chance I'm in life. I'm just grateful, yeah. And I'm just grateful, wow. and I'm able to move forward. And so, Because some of the what we read before, and I think it was in positive psychology, mm-hmm. is essentially taking, like, belief, people take beliefs about themselves mm-hmm. that aren't true, or like, I can't lose weight, or I'm right. ugly, or... You know, it's their opinion, and then they flip it though. So it's like they're they're pro they're essentially like reprogram themselves. Like I'm beautiful, I right. can lose weight easily, um, mm-hmm. and essentially like going on the positive side of that. Right. Have you seen that being effective as a as a tool to take like just to get people to it's one to stop telling themselves stuff mm-hmm. that I mean, there's no benefit to saying like I'm ugly. Right. Um, but on the other side of it, like saying I'm beautiful, mm-hmm. does it create more conflict where you're like, I'm lying to myself? Well, in my experience over time, it's not sustainable. Right. And so, but, but with cognitive behavioral therapy, there's an element of that. And so you, you start with this kind of negative event, right? And then you have this kind of negative outcome. But the second part of that, what we call the belief system, is that you have to spend time like identifying like how... How did this come to be? Like, this was a trigger, but how did I develop, like, I'm a bad person, I'm right. not worthy? Right. And is there any evidence to disprove that? So in my experience, discovering the evidence, looking for another perspective, and what I encourage clients to do is remove themselves, right? If it was my best friend and she was in the experience, right? She was in this, she got triggered, maybe she had a bad event, all these beliefs, what, would you, what other perspective would you offer to her? Right. And if that is like, oh my goodness, like you just didn't have a good day because you woke up rather than I'm a failure, right? right? Then I'm able to kind of have an emotional response in connection to that thought, right? And so I find that it's not just making myself happy and turning positive, but if I can go through and identify what my raw beliefs are and challenge them and discover any evidence to disprove that, that lands. Yeah. That shapes positive outcome, right? The belief structure does. Yep. And so, but just changing my belief structure without discovering any evidence, right? That may be temporary. Yeah. But there's some other work that has to be done for that to be sustainable over a period of time. Right. Because you're just in conflict with what you're telling yourself. Like it's. Right. And there's a reason why that belief is true. And so, but I'm a trauma informed therapist, though. So I always float backwards. Yeah. To figure out where was that, where where did did that develop? And then we go back and we, we work on that. And that helps shape like the current version of myself. Yeah. Right. So what? And then we utilize what does the current version of myself? What can they offer to the younger version? Yep. What did the younger version of myself needed to know? Yep. Back then. Because I can see how that applies. I mean, that applies to money. That applies to health. It applies to anything. I'm like, I can't yep. make money, or I'm always going to be poor, right. or um, I'm never. You know, I'm I'm destined for cancer because you know my mm-hmm. parents had cancer. So you think like just taking it back to going like the evidence of why I think that is, yeah. say I grew up poor and nobody ever made, you know, made any sort of money. So and the is formula. There any evidence out there that would make that not completely true? Right. Right. Because right. it has to be a hundred percent true for that belief to be affirmative. Right. But is there any evidence to, and again, irrational does not mean it's not wrong. Right. So right. So if I, you know, like. I am, or he's a jerk, right? There may be evidence to say that that person historically has been a jerk, but in the moment of which I'm triggered, there's no evidence to support that, and that makes it irrational to have. Right. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, 
Okay. Yeah, we were, and I think I read about saying he was acting like a jerk versus he is a jerk. Mm -hmm. Some people will take a specific feeling and attach it permanently to somebody instead of in that moment. Mm -hmm. So instead of just saying he was acting like a jerk, it turns into he was a jerk because of one action. Right. So I would... My recommendation would to say, you know, when you did this, I wouldn't even label it or give it a name or okay. give it an adjective. I would just name the behavior. Jerk. Do you think the, do you think jerk will be a bad word in twenty years? <laughs> It'll be like people well, will be going yeah. back that we're using the word jerk no, and we'll be. I just think that when we call someone anything, they can't hear us, right? Like you are. But if I said like when I texted you, I'll beep that out. Right? We're gonna have to, we're gonna have to block that out. Sorry. I'll fill out the blank. But if I were to text you and say when I texted you and you did not text me back, that hurt my feelings. Yeah, I can receive that. Yeah, that's that makes yeah, sense. That's fair. So I always try to get something parenting wise from you as well. Is there things that we should be exposing our children to? That'll give them less of a chance of being afraid of it when they're older, e.g. snakes or some other scenario. Like, is there a recurring theme that people come into and they say, oh, I'm very scared of this. But you think maybe if it was handled different when they were younger, they wouldn't be so scared of it. Conflict. Oh, not even something like it's conflict. You know, I see that a lot of. Young people are afraid of conflict. Of you know, they see things that may be a conversation that could be a conversation mm-hmm. that's conflict, and so they don't have it. They have this internal tor- turmoil, right, and begin isolating sooner versus giving them tools to really have a conversation without you can disagree and it not be a negative tone, yeah. right? So allowing and learning like that two competing beliefs can coexist, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So take a child who's afraid of conflict or has maybe never been exposed to conflict. How do you introduce them to more conflict so that they're not scared of it when they're older? So I think conflict will come all the time. So I don't think you have to create it. But what I will say is that when there's an opportunity for there to be a disagreement, make room for it. Like, okay, I understand your perspective, right? And as parents, we, we still are in, in the authoritative role, right? Mm-hmm. Ultimately, you can still make that decision. But how do I nurture an environment where your child disagrees, right? And I disagree with them, but still let them know that that's okay and appreciate. Yeah. Like, thank you for sharing that with me. That that was helpful for me to understand that you see things that way. Yeah. You, what you just did there was communicate like, I can share something that's difficult that I know my parents can disagree with because that's going to happen throughout life. It's going to happen with friends and um, relationships. But conflict is a big thing that I think that a lot of people, even in adulthood, um, they will pull away from relationships. And to me, the other person wasn't afforded the opportunity to change. Bring it up. Yeah. Right. And that's so, good. That's a good answer. Well, and there's, and there's, tons of conflict now with masks in schools and how the challenge i think is kids that don't want to wear masks or kids that do want to wear masks if you're not on the side of the Mm -hmm. majority it's a challenge to i don't know if show leadership or deal with that conflict without any support is somewhat you know because there's a lot of i mean at least in our household there's a lot of discussion on like how 
if if we as parents feel strongly that we don't what we mm-hmm. prefer him not wear my son not wear a mask right. to school and there's mixed political things on it that mm-hmm. one person says you can do this then the mayor then the governor then the president then the this um so there's these authoritative figures that are all still there's zero agreement and tons of conflict there and the kid just wants to do like what is perceived as right mm-hmm. and then you have parents that might be saying like this and then they go into an environment where the authority uh, the figure they're like nope that's who you need to listen to right. is saying the opposite of you it's trying like we're because that, that's one of the things i'm when you were saying that, i was like i'm yeah. thinking what tools could i give my son to you know to not be i want him to be a leader i want him to have his ability to like say like here's why i we or he chooses not to do mm-hmm. something or but it could get weird and like hey i don't <laughs> i don't choose to wear a shirt because you know what i mean of like, yes. <laughs> yeah like so I don't want him to. I don't want him to get that good at it. I guess. <laughs> no, I think it's. But, but, but I think because we're we're in a shared um, period of uncertainty together, I, I think you can leverage that. And mm-hmm. I think that you know, letting them know, like, hey, this person feels that strongly because of this. Um, you know, but this is why they feel that strongly. So right. understanding helps, and so right. that also says, like, you're you know, you're justified in what you believe, but also. This Here's why, why they think that this way. This is why they think this yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, yeah. my headphone is slipping away. Yeah, yeah. It's probably those uh, earrings are <laughs> too big. Or this is on your head. <laughs> <laughs> my brain's too big. Uh, yeah, I like I like that because I think sometimes too, a teenager is unable to deal with conflict and they just end up kind of going down the road that they're least resistant, quote unquote, friends or yeah. the ones that they think that would make them cool or make people right. like them. Because they haven't had the tools to have conflicts right. earlier, earlier in their life, or if they try to speak up, someone's mm-hmm. embarrassed them, or something's right. gone badly. So then they just kind of end up following the crowd or going down the path of least resistance. Yeah, I mean, I literally have some young um, college students um, that you know we talk about conflict, and it can be anything. It can be like you know, well, you know, she said this, you know, one or two times, and so. You know, and they communicate that they're creating a boundary, and I was like, okay, well, their boundary is like, I'm not going to talk to them. I was like, okay, well, this person's been in your life for a very long time. I said, you know, should we have the conversation with them to let them know, give them the opportunity to change? If they love you enough, right? Mm-hmm. It's possible that they would, but it's the idea of getting past that, right? Um, that fear, maybe it's fear of rejection. Sometimes we just avoid it, right? right. It is due to rejection and abandonment. And so then we get to explore that more where did that come from and recognize that it just didn't start with this friendship. And so, you know, and if we work on that and process that and, and, and identify the origin and, and reframe those beliefs, then hopefully we can empower them to do the hard thing. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you know, more times than not, when they have those type of conversations, the person just did not know that, you know, they may have thought that you just didn't like it, but they didn't really know that that made you feel really hurt and rejected. Mm-hmm. And they don't desire to make you feel that way. Yeah. Even if they don't agree with the method, they don't desire to make you feel that mm-hmm. way. And that can ignite change. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, like. Sorry I didn't have anything like snakes or turtles. No, or I, snakes <laughs> wouldn't <laughs> like, like conflict. Well, you know, yeah, I, I was thinking back to some when we were first married, my wife would ask me to do something and I might not hear her. I think. On, on average, you read somewhere a guy has to be asked like four times before they actually hear it. Mm-hmm. 
And I just didn't know. So she'd say, hey, can you take the laundry basket out here? And I wouldn't hear it, or maybe I would hear it and it was gone. And I was doing something else, so it didn't land. And then every time I'd walk by it, it would tick her off. <laughs> and then a week later, the laundry basket's sitting there. And I'd be like, what? what is this doing here? And she's right. like, you walked by, walk by that 155 times. But right. it was just understanding one side of it. A person's not necessarily being malicious. They maybe just don't yes. know, or they didn't mean to do it, or they didn't understand how it would be perceived from you. Right. What do we do when Randy Kloss looks in the mirror and he says that this gold chain and tank top make my biceps look big and strong? How do we fix that in his mind? That's true. What, what, I think the first step would be we need so many people to quit telling me that I look great whenever I walk around wearing that. I too like his tank top. How does it make you feel? I, yeah, I, I feel great. I mean, I look at myself and I think I look great. And I walk around and people confirm it. I'll just walk away and let it be. Just right. let it go. Yeah. Just let, let that. I mean, I do. I love his tank tops. I really do. Uh, well, no. Is let's say, is it fair that women can wear tank tops almost all the time? He wants to show his arms off more. No, I get hot. It's a hundred degrees here. <laughs> is it fair? Hey, what that that women she... can wear tank tops almost all the time, and it's considered professional, business casual, perfectly normal, mm-hmm. and. A guy, if they wear a tank top, it's weird. Wait, did we just come up with a product though? Formal shirtless or sleeveless, sleeveless for yes. men. Yes. With a collar. Yeah. I is this? Could... I mean, did we just come up with something here? I think we did. And make it appropriate for Randy to be adjusting, <laughs> <laughs> and the sleeve just ends right there. Let's flamingos. I think, uh, I yeah, think I that's the move. Sleeveless flamingo. No, just just to be clear for anybody listening, I don't just walk around in a tank top. It's when you're wearing. So these wear, no, right. we do. Pro, so we have like a fake company called Turquoise Tanks. <laughs> where that's it's a construction. A, company. It's a construction company. <laughs> we do tree cutting. We do landscaping. <laughs> <laughs> and it all started with I was on the golf course and we live on the golf course and I'm driving by and I saw him in his yard wearing a turquoise tank. <laughs> Which Is I'm just true? doing. I'm work. in my own yard yeah. building a deck. I felt like I could wear whatever and I, I just, wanted. I love. And then ever since, it's just turned into like anytime we're doing projects, uh-huh. it's tank top time. Yeah. Well, you can wear tank tops as long as he's wearing male rompers. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> male true. rompers are coming. <laughs> They're not. Nate's gonna. I'm gonna send Nate a male romper. You're not. It's gonna be it's a true. wedding anniversary surprise for you. So just be ready to be excited. <laughs> just let me know his size. <laughs> you like camouflage? Or just let me know what style you like as far as material. Yeah, wait for it. Sleeveless. Yeah. Sleeveless. I think that's it. Anything, any, anywhere that you've been in Colombia that you really like lately that you want to give a shout out to? That I've been lately? Restaurants. Nail yes. salon. Chiropractors. Um, Is it the Black Rooster? Yeah. Yeah, on in there. West Colombia? Yeah, mm-hmm. I enjoyed that place. What did you have? Hmm. I think I had salmon or Nathan had steak. I always eat off his plates. So I can't remember who had what. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was pretty good. Right. And the view was nice. nice. Cool. Okay. Good All stuff. Right. Well, thank you for being on. We yep. appreciate it. Thank you for having okay. me. Here.
We're here for the health of it. For the health of it.